This message by Jake Simmons was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Jake serves as a pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. Good morning. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. We're going to continue in our series through the book of Acts. Uh, This morning we're going to be covering a number of verses, so I'd encourage you, if you don't have a Bible, you can go ahead and raise your hand. One of our ushers will bring you one that you can keep, take with you. Uh, We're going to be looking at uh, God's Word this morning, and we're going to be making our way through this text. So please join me now, Acts chapter 13. We're going to begin by reading just verses 13 through 15. This is, isn't amazing just how much of God's Word we've already rehearsed this morning? And, And we get to continue to do that. God is so good to us. This, this is God's word for us this morning. Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So we'll stop right there for now. We've come in our study in Acts to a pivotal moment, an exciting moment. This, this is an exciting moment, a significant stage in the early church. Up until this point, the gospel has been going forth, but it has been, in a way, forced out of Jerusalem through persecution and through divine initiatives by the Lord. What I'm thinking of is Acts 8, Philip shares the gospel with an Ethiopian eunuch. In Acts 10, you see you have Peter who has a dream, and then he goes and he has a conversation with Cornelius, a Gentile, and and then as he's sharing with Cornelius, he sees the Holy Spirit fall on the Gentiles just as the Jews in Jerusalem, and and so you're seeing the gospel go forth, but, but it's either being forced or it's been through spiritually appointed times, but now there's a shift taking place. And, and it's, exci- it's an exciting shift. Now, as Zach reminded us last week, at the beginning of these verses, as the church in Antioch, a different Antioch, is praying and thinking of what they should do. What is the Lord calling them to? The Holy Spirit says, set aside for me Barnabas and Paul. And now they begin, the church begins, instead of the gospel begins, instead of being forced out, there's a shift, and now they are being sent out. The, this church in Antioch, it sets apart their best, their best missionaries, their best people, and commissions them. So now the gospel is not being forced out, now it is being sent, propelled. The church is excited to see the gospel go forth in power, we begin to see the church become ambitious. This is not a result of persecution. It's not a result of being pushed out, or, but it's by the power and leading of the Holy Spirit. And this is, this is in fulfillment, actually, of what Jesus says before his ascension. He says, this is what will happen. Acts 1.8, he says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Yes, we've seen that. And in all Judea, yes, and Samaria, yes, and now to the ends of 
the earth. The church now is about, the gospel is about to begin to reach the ends of the earth. And so Paul and his companions have sailed northwest to the port of Perga in an area of Pamphylia, what we call today is Turkey, modern-day Turkey. And then they travel to this different city called Antioch in Pisidia. There's a couple of shifts to take note of that have, that have occurred. Somewhere along the line, Paul has now shifted into leadership. It, it was Barnabas and Paul. Now it's Paul and Barnabas. So Paul is beginning to take on leadership, and we see him in his preaching and his leadership of the mission, in his missionary journeys. There's also another thing that Luke just slips in in verse 13. He, he says that John, John Mark, Barnabas' cousin, he leaves the group to go home, to go back home to Jerusalem. Now Luke just slips this in, but in Acts 15, we're actually, Paul is going to refer back to this event and said that John Mark actually deserted them. That's how Paul saw it. And let me tell you, as I was reading the commentaries about this, this moment when John Mark is leaving, it was like reading tabloids in the grocery store. Like these guys are saying, well, well, John Mark could have left because Paul is in leadership and now he's offended because Barnabas was, or John Mark left because he was looking at this journey and wouldn't think, I don't want to go to these different unreached people. And now he's going home. They just said they had all these different speculations of why this event happened. It truly was like I was checking out of the grocery store, and here is a tabloid magazine in the New Testament watching these commentators talk about this. We really do not know what happened. What I'm guessing is John Mark, he was ready to get back home to Jerusalem, his, big mom, his mama's big house in the home cooking, and he was going to enjoy himself and said, I'll see you boys when you get back. But that too is speculation. But we see Paul and his companions, they, they arrive in Antioch, Pisidia, and, and they do what we see Paul and his companions continue to do, as we'll see them do in the future. They go to the synagogue. And, and it's interesting. We get a look into what these synagogue services looked like, what, what happened, what, what took place there. There was singing. There was prayer. We're told that there was the reading of the law, reading of the prophets, you see the priority of God's word happening in the synagogue. And, and, and we must see that, that God's word was being read. It was being proclaimed. And, and apparently this was an ancient custom, but if you were a guest in a synagogue and you had an education and, and they met you and thought, hey, welcome, why don't you come and share a word of encouragement with us today? Can you come preach a message? And uh, so they, they send this to the Apostle Paul and and. Paul receives this invitation, and I think he is ready and excited to proclaim to this synagogue about who God is and what he has done. And, and the message, and this is the first, so what, what we're going to look at is the first recorded sermon of the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. So I have the privilege, the daunting task really this morning, to preach another man's sermon. That's what I get to do. And it is a privilege, and John Piper calls this the most God-centered, God-exalting, God-saturated sermon in the Bible. So I'm excited to dive into it to see what the Apostle Paul, what God himself has for us this morning. So I'm going to walk through our points, and at the end I'm going to, tell, I'm going to suggest and offer us what this text, what, what is the main point, what is this calling us to this morning? So I think there's three things that we need to know from this text. Three things we need to know. First, 
We need to, you need to know your history. Know your history. Let's, let's go back and let's look again at God's word. We're going to read verses 16 through 25. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, he said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he held them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found In David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Verse 23, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. We'll pause there. Almost 10 years ago in Edinburgh, in Edinburgh, Scotland, a new library was opened the Library of Mistakes. The Library of Mistakes was inspired by the 2008 Great Recession, which served as a perfect example of how, according to the library's curators, smart people keep doing stupid things. The library's curators argue that the only way to build a strong economy is to learn from our mistakes. In both 1929 and 2008, economic experts everywhere claimed to know exactly what they were doing. Yet not a single person could fix the series of mistakes that crashed the world's economy. After these financial crises, many were rightfully furious at the fraudulent bankers that systematically destroyed the world economy for their own gain. Wall Street brokers who received bailouts, millions lost everything. So to avoid these future catastrophes, a library in Edinburgh, Scotland, compiled a collection of sensible economic literature that aims to educate the next generation of economists. The Library of Mistakes, it contains over 2,000 books. Some of the titles, The Crash of the Titans, The Crunch, Debt Shock, Too Big to Fail, The Manipulators. Ultimately, The Library of Mistakes encourages self-reflection and the serious study of history. For those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. I'm guessing we could all have our own library of mistakes. I'm guessing we all could have a nice curated place where we have volumes upon volumes of mistakes that we have made more than once. I'm guessing we have libraries and shelves upon shelves of of things we could have done better. I have plenty. But how kind of God that this morning, what he's given us, he hasn't given us simply a library of mistakes. his, His point, his goal this morning as we look at our history, it's not to draw attention to mistakes. But what God has given us in his word is a story and a library of redemption. Isn't that good news that that he has given us 
the, the Bible. He has given us this history where the, ma- the main theme or focus is not simply or merely on what we have done, but what he has done. Not on our lack of faithfulness and our sinfulness, but really on his perfect faithfulness and on how he has redeemed a people for himself. God has given us a library, as it were, in the Bible, compiled of 66 books written by 40 different authors, written over thousands of years. But there's just one unified story. It's a story of redemption. And so this morning, the Apostle Paul, as he's beginning this, he's wanting the Jews, the Israelites, the God-fears, the God-fears are the Gentiles who, who agree that Israel's God is the true God, and they're there listening and wanting to think about what is our history? What has God done? And so, so Paul, he could have started anywhere in Israel's history. He could have began, he could have focused on many different things, but there are two things in Israel's history that Paul focused on. He focused on God's salvation of Israel through the Exodus, And then he also focused on God's provision of a king. So Paul, in four verses, covers multiple centuries of Israel's history. This theme of God's sovereignty and providence continues to be prominent in the book of Acts. Each chapter, each story, each narrative that we see is we see God's sovereign purposes being executed, being accomplished. We are observing this. This is how it's been since the beginning of time. Look at verse 17. It was God who chose Israel's father, fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He who multiplied them, brought them to Egypt. He's the one that brought them there through, through, through the story of Joseph, which is just incredible to see that what you intended for evil, I intended for good. So God, through these evil circumstances, brings a people into Egypt, multiplies them, and makes them into a nation. And then God says, I brought you there, and then I delivered you. So verse 17 says that, that he, with a lifted arm, basically what God did is I flexed my muscles against Pharaoh. And I delivered you, and I saved you out, and I delivered you from this, I made this exodus happen, and I made you into this nation. So he delivers his people, he saves them out, and he says that you are my people. In one one verse, Paul gets all that in. It's amazing. He sets them free, he displays for them at what lengths he would go to say that you are my people. We see We see just in one verse, the beginning of Paul's sermon, what we see is is the links, the commitment, the, the, the vastness of God's love for his people. He continues, verse 18, it was God who for 40 years, 40 years, put up with, I love that, God had to put up with the people. He, he had to bear with them in the wilderness wanderings. They were complaining. They would forget about God. They would say, Lord, why don't we go back to Egypt? They forgot all that God had delivered them from, and they would complain, oh Lord, we ate better in Egypt. We got this manna. So, so this idea of Paul is saying that the Lord had to put up with them. He bore with them. God carried, I love this imagery, God carried Israel like a father. He was their guide. He sustained them throughout the wilderness wanderings. Verse 19, it was God who destroyed the seven nations in Canaan. Yes, so humans fought those wars. Yes, humans were involved in that, but it was God who defeated those nations. It was God who gave the people of Israel this land as an inheritance. So so the land belonged to the Lord. 
Paul's highlighting this was God's land that he gave to his people as an inheritance. Verse 20, God, he then raised up judges to lead the people. And then verse 21, 22, God raised up Saul in response to Israel's sinful desire to want a king like the nation. So they get to the land, they look around, they're like, Lord, all these kingdoms and nations, they have a king. We want a king. Why why can't we have a king like them? And so God gives them a king, Saul, in response to Israel's sinful desire. But then God replaced Saul because God does what he wants. He appoints kings. He replaces kings. It is him who is in charge of all this. God is highlighting that he is the one in charge. This is his history. This is what he is doing. He is the one that does this. God then raises up David, the son of Jesse. He's a king unlike any other king. If you recall the story when, when Samuel is going to look for King David, he looks for him, but yet... There's, there's one that he couldn't find. It was David, this little shepherd boy. He was a harp player. He, 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 he was a slaying shooter. And God, against all human expectations, says, that's my man. That is my king. Because God doesn't look at the, out, the outer. He looks at the heart. And this is what he says. He says, he will be my king. And here's the reason why. Because he is a man after my own heart. So now God is going to, I mean, Paul is going to shift now. He's shifting from, okay, the exodus and God's saving acts, and now he's saying he provides them with a king. It's a king unlike any other king because King David was a man after God's own heart. Now, now David does go down as the ideal king in all of Israel's history, and what that means is, is God made a promise that from David, from his line, there's going to be this messianic king. From his line, I will, I will deliver. I will put from his line a child from his line that will be a son. And he will sit on the throne of God forever. And what's amazing to consider, we know, you may know, you may wonder, really? David? A man after God's own heart? Really? David? The adulterer, David? The murderer? The liar? Yes, this. David was not a perfect king. And we'll see this, but there was one that's going to come from his line. That's going to be the king of kings. A messianic king. A promised savior king. Who will be far better than David. One that will even rescue David himself. One that, yes, David had great devotion and he obeyed God as as unlike any other king, but there's a king coming who is going to be far greater. He's coming. So, 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 so Paul summarizes two, two events. We have the exodus. We have God saving acts, making this nation. Then we have God establishing a king. And so, so far, you can imagine everyone is loving the guest speaker in the synagogue. They're like, man, this guy's pretty good. We need to have him come back. He is knocking it out of the park, man. He knows his stuff. But then, but then, verse 23, Paul, he he pivots, he shifts, (laughs) he skips over, he goes from David, he skips over a thousand years to verse 23, and this is what he says, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. As I've thought about this, I've, I've wondered, had the news of Jesus reached Pisidia, Pisidian Antioch, have these people even heard of Jesus? 
Have they even heard the news? This was probably 13 years, they say, 13 to 15 years after the resurrection, the, the death and resurrection of Christ. Had, had the news reached? We don't know. It's unlikely. It's a Roman colony. There is a large amount of, there's a large Jewish population. It was a good distance from Jerusalem. John Mark didn't want to go. <laughs> He's like, I'm going back to Jerusalem. Think about that. What we could be reading, what, could we, what, what we could be seeing in Acts 13 is these people are hearing the name of Christ for the very first time. They are hearing the name of Jesus for the very first time. It's amazing to consider. It's amazing. Yet, before telling them more about this Jesus, Paul then draws their attention first to John the Baptist, who proclaimed a baptism of repentance prior to Christ's coming. Look at verses 24 and 25. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you... What do you suppose that I am? I am not he? No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. So, so, so Paul is, is bringing them, reminding these people that when John the Baptist came, what he proclaimed was this baptism of repentance, that it, it was a temptation for an Israelite to think that there was no need for them to repent. Compared to the, the nations around them, considering that God was their God, they had the fathers, the sacrificial system, there was no need to repent. Yet, yet before shifting and telling them more about who this Christ is, he points them to John, who the people would know, and said, John came. He was this forerunner, saying he came, and he's, what did he come and proclaim? This baptism of repentance. You need to turn from your sin, people of Israel. There's one coming. And John, in his humility, he says, no, it is not me, but there's one coming that I'm not even worthy to do, this household slave's task, this most menial slave task of untying his sandals. I'm not even worthy. There's one coming. There's one coming. You need to repent. There's one coming. The Savior's coming. Paul is setting the stage that, yes, we know our history, but the history, the pinnacle, God's word was silent for years. John the Baptist is sent. God's word has returned. God is speaking to his people again. What is he saying? He's saying, repent, repent, turn, because there's a Savior coming. And so Paul comes to this people in the synagogue and says, you too need to repent. Let me tell you about the one that has come. Let me tell you about the one that John the Baptist promised. Let me tell you about the one who can save you from your sin. Question for all of us this morning, is this, is this how you think about history? Is this how you think? Is this how you catalog your life? It's amazing to see that Paul, throughout this, even just the, this first portion of this sermon, it is God is the subject of everything. Human involvement, it is God who does it. It is God who is the author. He is the one who has accomplished. Is that how you see your life? Is this how we talk? As you look at this last week, do you see would you say, oh, I see what God has done. God did this in my life. God provided this for me. I woke up this morning because God kept me awake. As I look at this past year, I see the faithfulness of what God has done. Do you see your history as God's history? As you look to the future, 2024, do you, do you see that God is directing 
history, that he is the one who appoints presidents and senators. He's the one that establishes kingdoms. Is he the one? Do you see that? Not just as we look back, but as we look forward, are we able to trust the Lord with that? Paul's tracing Israel's history, not only to remind them of what he has done, but also to make sure that they don't miss. He wanted them to see all this. What what was this leading to? Second point, know your Savior. Let's look at verses 26 to 33. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and they laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we, and we, we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Let's stop there. Theologian B.B. Warfield, he describes the Old Testament. I love the way he describes it. He describes it as a room, a treasure room. He describes it as this room that is just filled with treasure, and it's dimly lit. I love that. That's what the Old Testament is. It is a treasure room. It's a treasure room of all these promises, of all these rumblings, of all these things, all these predictions, these prophecies, these imagery, these kings, these nations. It's all this treasure, but it's dimly lit. So you know that it's treasure. You know that it's valuable, but you haven't been able to see or make sense of it quite yet. Yet now, what what the Apostle Paul is saying is that the, the, the law that you have read this morning, the prophets that you have proclaimed this morning, They are fulfilled in Christ. We have brought you this treasure. The lights are full blast. It is clear that what the Old Testament, what your history, what your story has pointed to is this Savior. That David, Israel, the Exodus, the sacrificial system, the promises, the prophets, all these things is one story that is finding its culmination in Jesus Christ. He came. He did all these things. The treasure in the room is not your national identity. It is not who, your, your line. No, it is far greater. It is because you're God's people through God's Savior. He has rescued you. That is what he's saying. The Savior has come to rescue you. And remember, who's in the audience? God fears. Gentiles are in the audience too. We'll come back to that. But it's amazing to think about. I want you to remember that as you read your Old Testament. You're in a treasure room, and it's dimly lit. You can see now. Don't don't think you're in a room where it's painful. (laughs) I can understand when you hit Leviticus, and you're like, okay, Lord, what, what are we doing here? Where's the treasure? I don't see it. No, remember, there's treasure. There's treasure. The Bible is amazing. It's all about Christ. It's pointing to him. It's being fulfilled in him. 
It's amazing. Three things Paul wants us, wants us to see. Verses 27 to 28. Let's look at that. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him or understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him, though they found no guilt in him. So Jesus, though he was found guilty, was innocent. Jesus was innocent. Pilate executed him. The people of Israel wanted him to be executed, but they could find no guilt. He was righteous. He was perfect. He was not guilty. And for, for Jesus, for Paul, to say that he was innocent would have brought back to mind, more than likely, the Jewish sacrificial system. Because there was an innocent lamb that would be sacrificed. An innocent, there's an innocent lamb without blemish that they would remember would be, would, would be sacrificed for their sin. Jesus. What did John say? Behold, the Lamb of God. Jesus, that Lamb, that innocent one, found guilty. He was innocent. Next, Paul wants to make clear to them that Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. They, when they had carried out all that was written, this is in verse 29, they took him down from the tree, they took him down from the cross, and they laid him in a tomb, and God raised him from the dead. God did that. And then, for many days, he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee. I love what, what this author, C.T. Craig, says. He says, the early Christians did not believe in the resurrection of Christ because they could not find his dead body. Where did his body go? No. They believed because they found a living Christ. They found Christ, the one that they took down from the tree, the one that Joseph of Arimathea wrapped and brought to his tomb and laid him. They went back and they found him not there because he was alive. God had raised him from the dead. He, this is the one that promised one, the one that would sit on the throne. And not only were there eyewitnesses, there were eyewitnesses of this. Those who came saw him and testified. But then Paul points back, there are other witnesses. Look at the Psalms. Look at Isaiah, they said. And so he begins to list out these witnesses that there would be this one. For David, there would be this one that would sit on the throne. There would be this one that would reign. So he says this in verse 33. He says, he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus. As it is written in Psalm 2, you are my son. Today I have begotten you at the resurrection of Christ. He is the firstborn of many. Christ's resurrection says, this is the son of God, the promised one. He says, I will give to you the holy and sure blessings of David. This is the one that said that you will be on my throne forever. This is that Savior. You will, and then finally, you will not let your holy one see corruption. Jesus' body, his resurrected body, he has defeated sin and death. Sin has lost its power. Death has lost its sting because Christ, King, has come. And he is reigning. Look at verse 36. This is what Paul says. He says, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, and he was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up, he did not see corruption. David, Israel's greatest king, after he finished, he died. He returned to dust. He was the greatest king. He was the high point 
in many ways. His king and kingdom was the high point of old, of, of the Jewish, of Israel history. He died. But Paul is saying what he's inviting people to see this morning, there's another king. There's another king that after he died, he rose from the dead. He didn't die. He defeated death. So he's inviting us this morning. Do you know Christ? Do you know Jesus as your Savior? Lastly, lastly, after making clear the resurrection, after making clear that Jesus was resurrected from the dead, he says this. He says, verse 38, the resurrection is not merely a historical instance of God's keeping his promise. It is for his means of salvation. So listen to this. Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So through Christ, you can experience freedom. And this word for freedom that Paul talks about, he, it, the original gets at freed from means that you're justified. It's the same word that he says that you will be declared righteous. So what the law of Moses could only do was show your sin. When you go to it, it could show, yes, I have fallen short. I cannot fulfill this law. I cannot be perfectly righteous. But in Jesus Christ, there is freedom. Because in Christ, the law of Moses was fulfilled on your behalf by him. And the death, the penalty that you deserved for disobeying that law was put on him at the cross. And now, do you want to experience this freedom from sin? Do you want to experience this freedom from the bondage of just, Lord, I return to my sin over and over. I just can't escape it. Do you want to experience true freedom? Then you come to Jesus Christ. And the good news of the gospel is that you will be freed because you will be declared righteous. Here's the amazing thing. Here's the amazing thing. For those who have trusted Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, when God looks at you, what he sees is Jesus Christ. He doesn't see a library of mistakes. What he sees is a library of righteousness. And when he looks at his son on the cross, what he sees is all your mistakes and all your sin. It's been dealt with. And our God is a just God. And he will not deal with those sin anymore. When Jesus said it is finished, it is finished. So for those of you this morning, if you don't know this Savior, if you have not confessed, if you have not repented, what I have to offer you this morning is there is a Savior. He is resurrected. He is real. He has come. He's coming back. And what he has to offer you this morning is freedom. He will declare you righteous. He will set, he will set his righteousness. He will set his perfect life upon your life. And your life will be hidden with him. And when God looks at you, he will see Jesus, his son. May we never, may we never forget our Savior. We must know our Savior. Lastly, we must know our mission. Acts 13, verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. And they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke, at, spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. 
since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many were appointed to eternal life, believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the region. So, this is the next week. At the conclusion of the first meeting, there were those there who said, oh, please come back. Please return. Teach us more. So they've come back. Paul and Barnabas have come back. And, and what I want us first to note, and this, this is important, I want us to see the Jewish leader's response. They saw the crowds, and they were filled with jealousy. We have seen this before in chapter 5, 17, when Peter was doing great signs, they were filled with jealousy. And, and here's a lesson for us. Here's a lesson for us in our own hearts with jealousy. Jealousy is destructive. Jealousy will destroy you. It will destroy your home. It will destroy your relationships. It will destroy this church. It is destructive. And I think the Lord this morning wants to help us to open our eyes. If you're here this morning and you're battling jealousy, I think the Lord wants to let you see that to set you free from it. He wants to open your eyes to see, Lord, I'm jealous. I'm jealous. This season of Christmas, this season of Advent, this, this, this past year, I hear of all that people have done and my life just doesn't look like theirs. I'm envious. When I compare my marriage, when I compare my job, when I compare my bank account, when I compare what other people have, the car they drive, whatever it might be, maybe it's the way they pray. Maybe it's the way they talk about God. Lord, I'm jealous. I want what they want. I'm angry that I don't have what they have. It is hard for me to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. And what this will happen, what it'll do, is if, we, if jealousy goes unchecked, instead of rejoicing and, 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 and being grateful for what God is doing in someone's life, we will do whatever is necessary to bring them down. Jealousy can drive division through gossip, through slander, through selfish ambition. You, you, you can begin to take matters into your own hands, just like these Pharisees did. They were jealous of the crowds. And so what did they do? They began to blaspheme the message of God. That's how serious this is. They began to make people question the good news that Paul was proclaiming. It's what our jealousy does. It blinds us. It, helped, it, it, it keeps us from seeing what God is doing around us. This is what James has to say about jealousy. He does not mince his words. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly. It's unspiritual. It's demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. If jealousy, if, if jealousy has its way with us, if, if, if jealousy goes unchecked in our hearts, here's what, here's what it promises to give us. Disorder and every vile practice. If you're here this morning and you're jealous, if you're here this morning and you're battling envy, if you're here this morning and you came in comparing and just battling, there's a Savior. 
who came to set you free. There's a Savior who came that wants to give you freedom from jealousy. He wants to give you forgiveness. He wants to give you himself so that you can live this life content in him. He wants to give you satisfaction in him and him alone. This is why he came. He came not just so we can put Christmas trees in our homes and we can have lessons and carols and we can sing songs. No, he came because he knew you'd come this morning and you've been filled with jealousy. He knew you'd come this morning and you've been tempted in this way. And he came to rescue you and offer you forgiveness. The people of the Jews then deny what Christ, what Paul had to offer them in Christ. And so what Paul says here is that the mission will go on. The mission continues. He says that the the Jewish rejection, the reason that these Jews rejected, then we are going to turn to the Gentiles. And so, so Paul, he says this in verse 46, and Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, to the synagogue, to the Jews, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. So behold, we are going to turn to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. This is the Lord's doing. So Paul here is not saying, oh, well, Jew, the Jewish people, you've been really mean, so I'm going to go to the Gentiles. No, Paul is saying, hey, this was what God was planning all along. The the message of salvation has come to you. We we came to the synagogue. We brought this message to you because you are God's chosen people. A savior from your line, from your people has come. Run to him, trust in him, but you've thrust it aside. And so now we are going to go and we are going to proclaim this message to the Gentiles. We are going, this savior has come to be a light to the nation. So Paul, though, he continues. If what you'll see, Paul, he's not offended by the Jewish people, he actually continues to go to synagogues. Every city he goes to, he first goes to the synagogue. So this is not Paul being angry or pushing away the Jewish people. No, but he's saying, hey, the Gentiles are responding. They are rejoicing at this message. And this was God's plan. Remember Simeon in the temple when Jesus was brought? Luke 2, he says, this is what Simeon says, after seeing the Christ Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people. So so Simeon could see in this little baby, he's going to be a light to the Gentiles. This servant in in the the scripture that Paul quotes, it's saying that this servant, this Messiah is going to be a light. And so now what Paul is saying is that Christ dwells within me. Christ dwells within us. And now we are going to be this light. We get to spread this message of salvation. I love what what he says there in verse 48. Paul says, when the Gentiles heard this, they began to rejoice. They glorified in the word of God. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. Verse 49, the word of God was spreading throughout the whole region. And so what we see is God, God has been providential and sovereign over history. He's provided us with his son, and he's given us a mission. And so if I could capture what I think the Apostle Paul is calling us to this morning, I think this is what he's saying. He's wanting us to make, make known God's salvation to the ends of the earth. We now, knowing this salvation, get to make known God's salvation to the ends of the earth. Please pray with me.
Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your promises. Thank you that we can trace what you have done throughout history. Thank you that you have shown us yourself to be faithful. Thank you that you have shown us that you have given us a savior to deliver us from our sin, that you have given us a mission that we get to proclaim this message of salvation to the ends of the earth. Thank you that we, we are here this morning because we have heard this gospel. We are those Gentiles, mostly, who have heard this message and are rejoicing in our hearts at this salvation. So, Lord, I pray that you would just give us greater faith and assurance in what you have done. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You've been listening to a message given by Jake Simmons during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.